Welcome to the latest episode of Silver Screen Superheroes, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This month we are taking a look at X-Men First Class. This was released widely on June 3rd, 2011, and it was a bit of a course correction. The previous two movies in the franchise, as we've already discussed, were not terribly well received by audiences. But the franchise as a whole had made enough money, and the opening weekends of the last two that weren't that well received made enough money, that Fox was convinced that there was still life in the X-Men franchise, particularly since in 2011, Marvel's in-house studio had things in high gear. And if Fox ever goes seven years without making a film of a particular franchise, the rights will revert back to Marvel. That's how they lost Daredevil. That's why they put Fantastic Four into production when they did. It doesn't have to be released within seven years of the last film, but they do have to have a movie in production within seven years of the last film. And Josh Trank's Fantastic Four was in production just barely within the seven-year mark relative to the release of Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer. And Fox, they've even announced that they want to continue with the Fantastic Four and not lose those rights. Similarly, they don't want to lose the X-Men rights either. And there's even rumors that they're going to try to have a crossover between the two. But in any event, when they felt they needed to course correct, they took a look at the history and it seemed like the thing that worked was Brian Singer. So they reached out to him and were talking to him to bring him back. He did eventually step away from the director chair to work on Jack the Giant Slayer, but he was there long enough to change the plan of the film. The original idea was to have a Magneto solo film in X-Men Origins Magneto, just as they'd done with X-Men Origins Wolverine. Singer decided to open it up and have it be the team's origin and just have Magneto become a large part of it. So when he stepped off to make Jack the Giant Slayer, he did stay as producer. His story ideas were retained enough for him to share a story credit, and Matthew Vaughn took over as director. Now, this is the fourth of five director credits that Matthew Vaughn has on the IMDb. Prior to this one, there's Layer Cake, Stardust, and Kick-Ass. And then number five is Kingsman the Secret Service which we'll be discussing at some point, most likely. He also produced Locked Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. He was producer on Snatch, producer on Swept Away, and more along those lines. Now, with the writing credits on this one, the story credit goes to Brian Singer and Sheldon Turner. Turner also worked on The Longest Yard, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Beginning, and Up in the Air. But the final screenplay credits are shared by writing partners Ashley Miller and Zach Stentz, who had previously collaborated on Agent Cody Banks, Twilight Zone, Andromeda, Sarah Connor Chronicles, Fringe, and Thor. And Jane Goldman, who shared credit on the screenplay as well, had previously worked with Matthew Vaughn a number of times, including Stardust, Kick-Ass, and The Debt. And we'll go into her later career in more detail, since her name does come up again. Now, X-Men First Class is the name of a comic book series created by writer Jeff Parker, penciler Roger Cruz, inker Victor Olazaba, colorist Val Staples, and letterer Nate Picos. It's a series that tells stories meant to fit between the early issues of the comics from the 1960s, when the team was overseen by Professor X and the field agents were Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Iceman, Beast, and Angel. Aside from the name and the fact that it does happen around the days of their origin, this has almost nothing to do with that story. It starts a little bit sooner and shows the actual formation of the team instead of what's happening immediately after they formed essentially keeping that X-Men Origins concept, but widening it out to the whole team. They used the costumes that they used in First Class, but that's more a side effect of the fact that First Class used the costumes that appeared in the original early 60s editions. When the X-Men started, they were students in Xavier's School for the Gifted, and they didn't get individualized costumes until graduation. Prior to that, 
They wore costumes all of the same or similar design as we see in this film. And this film used a very different set of characters than the ones we just mentioned, at least for the most part. So the key characters and notable stars in here. First up, we've got Professor X, played by James McAvoy. He was previously in Children of Dune, Wimbledon, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, Becoming Jane, Wanted, and Romeo and Juliet. Relative to the comic book origin, they kept his basic childhood, where he was in a well-to-do family. They cut ties to his stepbrother, Kane Marco, a.k.a. the Juggernaut. And they brought Mystique into his childhood when she wasn't present there before. So this movie eventually shows us why he's in a wheelchair in his later appearances. It's a new reason compared to the ones that they used in the comic history, but honestly, I like this one better than most. The emotional connections to the other characters are a lot stronger, and it's a lot more tragic. The original story in the comics was that he lost the use of his legs in a fight to protect others, but it was against an alien named Lucifer. And at the time those comics were written, there was no hint that Xavier and Magneto were childhood friends. The second major character and performer, I would say, is Magneto, played by Michael Fassbender, who had previously worked in Band of Brothers, Murphy's Law, Inglorious Bastards, and a lot of British stuff, as McEvoy had. And Magneto's origin is almost entirely accurate, aside from the source of his helmet. Even his friendship with Xavier was retconned in later. The next major player is Mystique, as portrayed by Jennifer Lawrence. She made her acting debut in Monk, but she also guest starred in Cold Case in Medium. When this came out, it was probably her highest profile role to date. So, And the connection between Magneto and Xavier is new, But other than that, a lot of her emotional journey is accurate. She was practically orphaned as a child, felt like a freak because her powers manifested so early and they had such a dramatic effect on her outward appearance. Now, in the comics, she was adopted and taken in, and that's what put her on the path. But instead of being adopted by the Xavier family, she was adopted by Destiny, the blind precognitive mutant, who actually was the Irene Adler from Sherlock Holmes, according to the Marvel mythology. The comic book version of Mystique also had almost no connection to Magneto, aside from reforming his Brotherhood of Mutants while Magneto had been de-aged into a baby and shot off into space. But that relationship between Mystique and Magneto, the ultimate relationship they have was largely established in the first film. All this one did is really show us the early days of that relationship. The fourth major player in here is Sebastian Shaw, played by Kevin Bacon. I don't know that I really need to go through Kevin Bacon's credits. I mean, he's in everything, Footloose, Apollo 13, Friday the 13th, and so forth. The character itself may very well be the greatest departure from the comic book source material. In the source material, Shaw does run the Hellfire Club. To my knowledge, he was never a Nazi. And his energy absorption powers have no visual component. There's no energy discharge. You know, he doesn't collapse the fireballs. He doesn't have his head split up into duplicate or triplicate and then be able to blast out energy with just a fingertip, he just gets stronger and more durable and stronger and more durable, and that's about it. But his calculating nature and his plotting and his planning and his manipulation of politics is accurate. He was just introduced for the first time well after the Cuban Missile Crisis was over, and in the comics had no involvement with that. Moira McTaggart, played by Rose Byrne, who had previously been in Attack of the Clones, Troy, Wicker Park, Marie Antoinette, 28... Weeks later, get him to the Greek bridesmaids and more, and even more since, was also a fairly big departure from the comics. In the comics, she is a doctor and medical researcher, and also one of Charles Xavier's former lovers. He's got a few of them. She does the research on Wire Island, as she was in X3 The Last Stand, and her son was the mutant also known as Proteus, who had an aversion to metal and reality manipulation powers and all sorts of things along those lines. Very different from a CIA agent. 
The man in the black suit was played by Oliver Pratt. He wasn't Vaughn's first choice, but the studio was concerned at the number of British actors that Vaughn was casting, so he was the main US choice. Pratt debuted in an episode of The Equalizer, went on to guest star in Miami Vice, Married to the Mob, Working Girl, Flatliners, and a lot more, as well as, you know, 2012, Love and Other Drugs, Dr. Doolittle, A Time to Kill. The character itself is not really based on anyone in particular from the comics. The X-Men have had a number of government liaison officers who have had varying levels of character development. He could be any number of those, because a lot of them were pretty plain and not developed in any sort of depth. Now, Riptide is a minor player in the comics, played by Alex Gonzalez in his English-language debut here, although he's got a lot of Spanish work behind him. Here, he's essentially a one-dimensional thug, so it's not really either consistent with or in contradiction to the comics. He's just kind of there and not developed in any way, shape, or form. Now, Azazel, played by Jason Fleming, has 110 credits back to 1991, Fleming was previously in Jungle Book, Rob Roy, Stealing Beauty, Spice World, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, Snatch, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen as Jacqueline Hyde, Layer Cake, and a lot more. The character is somewhat similar to his comic book adaptation. The comic book version of Azazel is in no way a lackey. He has been worshipped as a demon, although he claims to have just been a mutant that has lived for a couple thousand years. His main claim to fame in the comics is that he was revealed to be Nightcrawler's biological father where Nightcrawler's biological mother was Mystique, in a story arc from a run that is, I'll say, not fondly remembered. There have been better runs, there have been worse runs, but that one got a lot of, of criticism dumped on it, mostly warranted and justified. We also see Angel Salvatore, played by Zoe Kravitz, the daughter of Lenny Kravitz and Lisa Bonet, who had previously been in Californication and a number of lesser-known titles. She has since been in Treading Water, After Earth, Divergent, Insurgent, Mad Max Fury Road. In the comics, the character isn't interested in combat whatsoever. She just went to Xavier's school to learn how to cope with her powers, which include basically insect DNA. So it's not just insect wings. But when she got married to Beak and started having kids, they were born as larvae and so forth. And she has faithfully stayed on Xavier's side of the conflict when she's gotten involved at all, which is as little as she possibly can. Now, Emma Frost here is played by January Jones, in a version that seems fairly unrelated to the X-Men Origins Wolverine version. I mean, that one was able to turn into Diamond, and we didn't really learn a lot about her there. January Jones had previously been seen in Anger Management, American Wedding, Love Actually. She went on to play Last Man on Earth, Mad Men, and so forth. This character is somewhat accurate relative to her earliest appearances. She has since been developed much more fully and is now a hero and Cyclops' ex-girlfriend. Now, the only core member of the X-Men team who actually was a core member of the X-Team in the source material is Beast, played here by Nicholas Holt, who studied Kelsey Grammer's portrayal at length to try and echo that and really be the kind of character who would grow up to become Kelsey Grammer's version. And there's enough age difference between the actors that it works to have him as one of the founders here as well. Again, his previous credits are primarily British, going back to 1996, the ones best known to North American audiences would be About a Boy, The Weatherman, and Clash of the Titans. This character was fairly accurate, although they did change what made him become blue and furry. In the comics, originally Beast was accused of a murder he didn't commit, and rather than create a mask or go undercover, he created a concoction that would control mutation and took it knowing it would physically mutate him in one way or another, and took enough 
to make sure that the physical transformation would be drastic enough that he would look different, not thinking he was going to grow fur, which was originally gray, and then he didn't get to the antidote in time to remove the disguise. He went through some other experiences, and the color shifted to uh, blue-black. It was originally described as black with blue highlights, and then just kind of became blue when he came back in later stories. For the most part, he this is a largely accurate portrayal of Beast. You know, he's one of those super smart characters who doesn't always foresee all of the consequences of his actions. His first encounter with Mystique was when she was a villain. Next up, we have Banshee, who is one of the characters that was introduced before the X-Men Renaissance of Giant Size number one. He was a villain because he was under mind control. He was also an Interpol agent and later on became Moira McTaggart's second husband. Here he's played by Caleb Landry Jones, whose debut was in No Country for Old Men, also played in Social Network, The Last Exorcism, and Friday Night Lights, as well as quite a bit more later. The personality is accurate, although he hasn't developed the history that he has in the source material yet. Next up we have Darwin, played by Eddie Gathegi, whose name I may have just completely butchered, who debuted in Crank, was also in Veronica Mars, Gone Baby Gone, House MD, CSI and CSI Miami. He was in the Twilight films, but we'll try not to hold that against him. Atlas Shrugged Part 1, and has gone on to make Justified, Proof, and a lot more. He's still definitely an active performer. And he gives a fairly accurate representation of Darwin, although Darwin is a relatively new character who doesn't have a lot of backstory or a lot of depth. Now, rounding out the core X-Men team, we have Havoc, played by Lucas Till, who was previously in Walk the Line, House MD, Medium, and Battle Los Angeles. We'll expand on his later career later on. This one is another departure from the comics. He does have energy rings, although they don't come out like hula hoops. He points his arms forward and they come out in concentric circles that way. The character in the comics was never in prison, and in fact he was Cyclops' younger brother, raised by a different family after getting adopted without Cyclops. When their parents pushed them out of a crashing plane with a single parachute, they assumed their parents were dead, although it turns out their dad actually became a pirate in space and leader of the Starjammers, who could really use their own movie. They were adopted separately, and in the comics, Havoc never really wanted to be a superhero. He kept repeatedly trying to retire and lead a normal life as a research scientist with his girlfriend Polaris, although circumstances keep dragging him back in because he does have a sense of responsibility and recognizes that he can do good and therefore should, even though he's not particularly driven to do so. And he's recently led a team that was composed of a combination of X-Men and Avengers, which was Captain America's idea to help legitimize mutants in the eyes of the public. Now, the Stryker family is back, in a way. The William Stryker, who was the villain from X2 and father of the movie version of Mastermind, is the son of the Stryker that we see here, who is a CIA member who's got an anti-mutant attitude. He's played by Don Creech, who was previously in Leon, 8mm, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and more. Creech is still a working actor these days. And this does a nice job of taking a character who didn't exist in the comics, but showing enough about him to understand where the striker that we've already seen came from. And the last performer I want to make note of is Ray Wise, who plays the Secretary of State. I recognized him immediately as the Devil from Reaper. He was also Laura Palmer's father in Twin Peaks. He was in Robocop, and he's been in a lot more. There's not much to say about his character. He's got one line and one shot. Now, the orchestral score in this, I think, is one of its highlights, composed by Henry Jackman who had previously done Monsters vs. Aliens, Kick-Ass, Gulliver's Travels, Winnie the Pooh, Puss in Boots, Wreck-It Ralph, since done G.I. Joe Retaliation, Turbo, Kick-Ass 2, Captain America Winter Soldier, Pixels, and will soon be heard again on Captain America Civil War. His was one of the standout jobs in an excellent movie overall. 
The cinematographer John Matheson had previously been in Gladiator, Hannibal, K-Pax, Matchstick Men, Phantom of the Opera, Kingdom of Heaven, Robin Hood, 47 Ronin, Man from Uncle, and more. And he doesn't just compose the shots, he actually generally has a very active camera, which really helps with the feel of pacing and excitement in a film. There are two major editors here. Eddie Hamilton had worked in Kick-Ass, D-Wave, Dead or Alive, Swept Away, and more. And Lee Smith, who we discussed when we were discussing Nolan's Batman trilogy, as he participated in those, as well as Ender's Game, Interstellar, and the upcoming Spectre. So those are the major players in terms of putting the film together. And with Matthew Vaughn and Brian Singer's ideas coming in and Fox taking a little bit of a back seat to let them put the franchise back on its feet, we actually end up with one of the strongest entries in the franchise. I would say that title of the strongest entry is, it's a pretty close draw between First Class and X2. They're both extremely well done. Now, despite having that strong success, there's not a lot that came out of this film that went back into the comic book mythos. It doesn't seem to be feeding in that direction very much. Professor Xavier is still very much dead, but with the Red Skull wearing his brain around and everything. Magneto keeps flip-flopping between hero and villain, but that's not new for him at all. He's been doing that since before this movie came out. I can't think of any particular element in the comics that drew a strong influence from this film. Maybe at best we saw the Neil Adams miniseries of the first X-Men, showing them set during the Cold War, although not during the Cuban Missile Crisis, as this one was set in a rather interesting plot where essentially they're saying mutation is accelerated by radiation and nuclear fallout, so Sebastian Shaw is trying to kickstart World War III to wipe out the humans and leave nothing but mutants behind. One of the last things we always look at is how this performed at the box office. Remember, as a rule of thumb, the domestic gross needs to be two to three times the budget before we can really say that the film is profitable. Well, this one has an estimated budget of about $160 million. The domestic gross was $146,408,305. So less than the budget. It would have lost money if it was purely a theatrical release. Now that said, the international box office draw was more than the domestic. That came in at $207,250,819. And I think a lot of that was underperformance compared to the quality of the film. So the total worldwide box office of $352,624,124. It's a little over double the budget. So it probably did end up profitable, especially since budgets now include the cost of developing bonus features to show up as special features on Blu-rays and DVDs. Although that's fading because they are finding that people aren't paying extra for those these days. It did launch sequels, so I'm assuming that Maybe with the help of the home market or home video release, it has made a fair amount of money. But the year it came out was a very competitive year for superhero films, and it just didn't have the same marketing push as the others. And also when it's up against the Marvel Studios films, which are so interconnected, it feels like an X-Men movie is one you can sort of skip and not miss much. And to be honest, this was the first one in a long time that I hadn't seen in theaters. I was out of the country when the first one was released, so that I saw on home video, but X2, X3, and X-Men Origins Wolverine, I was there opening night for all three of them, and satisfied with one. The last two left such a sour taste in my mouth. With this one, I held off and waited for reviews. I also did that with The Wolverine, which we'll discuss next month, but these are both very strong films. I suspect I was not the only one who was waiting for the home video releases, and picked it up then, given the very strong, positive feedback from it. So, that's about all we have to say about X-Men First Class. Join us again next month when we discuss The Wolverine, starring Hugh Jackman in Wolverine's second solo film, and then X-Men Days of Future Past will follow in October. In the meantime, you can rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get podcasts from that allows a rating system. Feel free to share with your friends. 
And you can email feedback to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out the other podcasts that Bureau 42 puts out. And finally, thank you for listening.